There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I am your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode 353. Today in the show, I am joined by Hale Herring to explore what it means to be and even how to be a conservationist in a post-pandemic world. All right, welcome to the Wired Done Podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today, my guest is Hale Herring. And Hale was on the podcast five or six months ago, but it was a very different scenario because Hale was actually interviewing me. This time, I'm flipping the tables and I'm back in the interview seat. He is the guest. And if you're not familiar, Hale is the host of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, their podcast in Blast. He is a tremendous conservationist and advocate for wild places and wild animals. He is a writer for Field and Stream and a number of other outlets. And he's just become one of the one of the voices and leaders that I have turned to and pointed back to and learned from so much in my own journey as um, you know, someone who who wants to be an effective conservationist and advocate, and I'm learning and growing and, and trying to make some kind of positive impact. Well, hell is someone who's been able to do that. And I thought today we could pick his brain about where he thinks we're going now, that we are heading towards some kind of new normal. The world has changed. We all know what I'm talking about. Uh, the last few months have been strange, scary, different, um, just different. And I got to believe that means things are going to be different moving forward when it comes to advocacy, when it comes to sticking up for the environment and the conservation of, of wildlife and public lands and all these different things. So this is a this is a, a different kind of conversation that we kind of go all over the place. We discuss, you know, some of the things that inspired Hale to try to become someone who could advocate for these things. We talk about ways he's tried to funnel his frustration or anger or disappointment, discouragement, all these different things. How do you take those emotions? How do you use that for good? How can you filter all the stuff out there? How can you listen to what one person says and then the different idea from another person and then try to figure out what's true? 
how do you realize or learn what issues we should fight for and which ones maybe we step step back from? How do we write effective letters or make phone calls that actually make a difference? How do we make a difference? It seems sometimes like, ah, post something on Facebook, sign this petition. Does that do any good at all? Does, does anything that we as individuals do make a difference? Especially now that this whole shitstorm of a pandemic has hit us across the country and it seems like everyone's so focused on on that, on health and the economy. Is there even time and energy and oxygen left in the room to talk about conservation public lands? That is what we talk about with Hale today. I think if you listen to this podcast, you are a hunter. If you're a hunter and you listen to this podcast, you care about these things. You care about deer. You care about wild places. You care about wilderness. You care about water and air and dirt and critters. And you want to keep these things around. And the way we are going to do that is by figuring out how to be a conservationist. And now we need to figure out how to do that in this weird pandemic and and hopefully post-pandemic world. That's our conversation today. I hope you will listen in. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I hope you learn something from it or become inspired by it. Um, I certainly was. And uh, I'm ready to get out there and kick some tail. So without further ado, thank you all for listening. And let's get right to it with Hal Herring. All right. I am very excited to have Hal Herring with me on the podcast. Hal, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here, man. Yeah. You know, you had me on your podcast a few months ago, so it it just seemed only right that I should return the favor and have you on mine. So uh, (laughs) it's it's nice to have the control again. I'm back at the driver's seat, which I'm used to. I bet. Yeah. (laughs) That was a fun one we did down there in Bozeman, which was cool that you were in... in, within shouting distance where I could come down there and do that. That worked out great. And I, I had a lot of fun too. And, uh, man, it was, it was really, it was fun for me to have this reversal of roles where someone's asking me about my perspective on some of these conservation or public land related topics. Um, but the whole time we were talking, I found myself wanting to keep asking you questions. <laughs> and so, so now, <laughs> yeah. now I've got, I've got all these questions that I'm going to push at you. Uh, a lot of different things I want to talk about. It's a, it's a weird time right now in the spring of 2020, as you know, of course. Um, I'm in it too. <laughs> yeah, you're right there. We're, yeah. we're in the same boat on that. You know, yeah. how, how, how are you handling things? How, how has this changed your typical spring activities, lifestyle, anything like that? Well, at first it was kind of, um, I was pretty relaxed about it because, uh, for one, I had more time to put in like a bigger garden. Um, and I was kind of obsessively pushing the fishing season here. I got, I got into fishing real early and I, I was, I almost, it wasn't like a vacation, but it was a time out of time sort of. And then, um, and then it, as as the drag on of that came in, I realized I had to get back to work and I had to get lots of work done, and that was pretty hard. Um, you know, my kids were home. My daughter is fine; she's working, babysitting on a ranch. My son is is cowboying on the Broken O Ranch west of town, but both of them were home. You know, and um, and then my wife was working at the library and keeping it open, but nobody could come in, <laughs> and so it was just sort of a um. It's as if the carpet underneath you was constantly shifting. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Which is hard. To, it's distracting. It is. It is. You, uh, 
you've been hard at work though, still on on some some projects related to a lot of the stuff writing about public lands and, and whatnot as well too, right? I am. I'm I'm working on a on a book length project on the public lands. Um hopefully it'll be almost as good as yours. <laughs> I'm sure it's gonna um, surprise. I certainly ran, I've I've certainly been ransacking yours to see what <laughs> what new <laughs> things I had to offer. Uh but um it, it's yeah, I'm working on that, and I was super lucky to have that project underway before the shutdown. Um, I did a field and stream story that I turned in like right the first of March, and I came back from the shot show, which was it by all rights should that Las Vegas should have been the epicenter of of the COVID virus because it was the year of the rat, and and it was on the same day that Hubei province was shut down that the SHOT Show and the Year of the Rat celebrations launched in, in Las Vegas. Wow. And, and one of the mysteries here is it, it's not an epicenter of the epidemic, of the pandemic. So nobody knows anything, and that's, a, <laughs> that's something we could talk about. Yeah, that's very true. So many questions. We have great scientists, and we have great science, but the world, including viruses, are a mystery to us, and maybe there's a lesson there. I don't know. I feel, I feel like those questions asking those things wonder about those things that's probably what makes you such an interesting and helpful writer i mean that's that's what makes any of us a writer probably or creators is being curious don't you think is being curious for sure yeah like and and one and there and then and then there's another element to that because no i don't really know about the motivation of viruses I don't know what they're doing, but I do know, like, if you take care of, and I, I'm not on a soapbox here, but if you go and do a restoration project on a trout stream or on a, on a tributary to your favorite catfish river, that you can throw a stone and have a real effect that you can see. And so there's this balance between the things that we cannot know, the, the, all, the, the huge world of mystery and peril, and the things that we can actually address, which, not surprisingly, might help you get through the things you can't understand, <laughs> yeah, or can't see coming. It's it's funny you bring this up, and this is this is exactly one of the things that I want to talk to you about, which is this whole idea of like the things you can control or the things you can maybe have an impact on, uh, as someone who at a young age, just fell in love with the outdoor world. It wasn't until I got yeah. into my 20s when I started thinking about, you know, what my impact was on this natural world yeah. that I love so much. Yeah. Um, and then once I started thinking about that, it was this massive kind of cascade of different questions and answers. And, well, what does this mean then? Or what should I do about that given this? Um, when when did that happen for you? Like, when did you realize that you had an impact or that you had, or that, or that you could make a difference, or anything. When did you realize that you wanted to do what you're doing now, which is writing about and advocating for uh, wild places and, and wild animals and, and things like that? Well, I don't think I had a choice so much. Um, like when I was, I, I grew up in North Alabama, and that the the development there is tri- double, triple, quadruple what it was when I was born, um, and so. Like from an early age, my parents were were they they bought a farm outside of Huntsville, and we all we we lived out there. Um, but from an early age, they were like, "Isn't that beautiful? You know, wouldn't it be? Isn't it sad that they've channelized the creek 
<laughs> you know, where we all fished. And so I was steeped in that kind of idea early. I mean, the, the idea of natural beauty and, and like, my parents are very religious. And so, like, the, like God and, and not so much stewardship, but just the mystery of creation, right, was always there. So it was really deep, deep ingrained in me. Um, and then it was doubled down because you could go out there and snag red horse in the spring these beautiful, huge suckers and that would run up this creek, and you would bring them home and eat them, you know, and they were bony. Or you could <laughs> shoot a rabbit and have it for supper. And like, like you'd spend just, like, all of your time immersed in this thing. And so later on, I, I don't think it was quid pro quo. I think it was just like, you know what, Mark? I, one of the things I saw was like, holy smokes, you could fix that. <laughs> you know? I remember when I got into the game farming stories, it was one of the very first big investigative journalism thing I ever did. And I was like, whoa, they just built a huge game-proof fence across the wild mule deer migration path. You know, and so now what are the legal and ethical ramifications of that, right? All these mule deer showed up on the highway down at Darby and got run over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, damn, you could take that fence down and make it better. Um, but somebody owns that fence, so how do we deal with that, you know? What were the... It's almost like it's, it's, almost like it's fairly simple. Right, but, it, but it's not, though, because it's, it's, it's not. easier said than done, I think, for... Right, which is incredibly interesting. Who? When did you realize that you could do it, though? Or, or was there... I don't know. Was there a person? Was there something you read? Was there was there some kick in the ass that went from oh, there's something you could do to damn it, I have to be the one to do it. Well, it, no, there was a, but I did read Ted Williams a lot, um, and in my twenties, like in my late twenties, and Ted Williams was doing what I at Audubon. He had a column called in, Insight. Yep. And um, I read that one, and that was about game farming, one of the ones I found, because I was getting interested in this. But, uh, you know, I worked as a laboring person, and a kind of a, I did all kind of weird labor jobs, and so I never made a lot of money. And so to sell a story about something that I was already, like, really passionate about, um, and get a check for, say, 600 bucks or 1200 bucks, you're like, oh, whoa, this is something maybe I can do. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much how I got into it. I did not ever, I would, I had a lot of fury <laughs> about like, like ecological devastation, uh-huh. but I, I didn't really do much with it. And I, I was lucky to meet people. I worked on trail crew for a guy who was very important. He, he said, you know, anger is not really, uh, that's not really a substantive way to address things that bother you. Uh, unfocused anger. Are you telling me that ranting on Facebook or Twitter is not a productive use of my time, Hale? <laughs> I don't know, but if, if so, if so, I share your guilt. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though, because these days with social media, it is so easy to have that fury and put it out there in the world. And there's some, at least for some people, there's some, uh, I don't know, a little bit of therapeutic effect to doing that, but. 
you're not really catharsis. doing anything. Yeah, there's some catharsis there, but you're yeah. not really doing anything. You're getting almost the illusion of accomplishment, but it's not mm-hmm. it's not really impacting things in a substantial way other than annoying whoever follows you on social media. So Right, and it, it's dangerous in that you lose friends over it. Oh yeah. That wouldn't wouldn't otherwise know that you had these these ideas, you know. Yeah, it gets it can get real toxic and nasty, that's for sure. I've yeah. I've strongly thought about just getting off of Facebook totally because I've just gotten sick of a lot of the stuff I've seen there. But at the same time, I find myself having some fury too. And I wish, you know, there's times I want to just yell at the world. How do you channel, how do you channel that? How do you, how do you do, how do you figure out what to do or how to do something with that these days? Cause you know, when you and I were sitting there together in Bozeman a couple months ago, we talked about Ed Abbey. Edward Abbey, he was this guy yep. who had a whole lot of piss and vinegar. He had some fury. And, you know, he he found some positive ways to use that fury to impact change. And maybe he talked about some things that we wouldn't condone, too. But uh, right. yeah. how do we channel the good part of that fury and, and do good with it? Uh, how do you think about that? Well, I, I, I would say there's several things in there. One thing Abby came from was a place of incredibly deep love for that place where he found himself in the desert. Um, like, behind the anger, behind the polemicist, there's a person who is unbelievably happy to walk through the desert for miles and miles and just look at stuff and pull it all in. Um. And so that's different than a person who's just walking around in a in a fury. Uh, you, does that make sense? Yeah, I, it's got the foundation is strong. The foundation is is like irrefutable. Like like this guy really loves this. You know, uh, one of the quotes was like, you know, let's love America, let's save some of it. Yeah, <laughs> I stand for <laughs> what know, I stand uh, on. Yeah, yeah, and um, and I I just. You know, I got introduced to his work really early because my father loved that movie. Um, it's called the uh, the Brave Cowboy. Yep. And it was made with Kirk Douglas, Lonely Are the Brave. Yep. And um, he was really interested in that movie, which is strange. I mean, he was a lawyer and wasn't particularly into anarchist theory and stuff. But uh, that so we had that book, and then years later, uh, I saw like Desert Solitaire and all the all those other stuff. Um, but I think that that's part of it is you gotta be, you gotta love stuff first, you know? Um, and then the other part of it is that really cool thing about journalism, which is, 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 it's not always practiced for sure, but where you really and truly insist on abandoning your own biases, your own expectations and your own hopes for what something might be. And you just sit there and go off and take it in and let the the chips fall, the truth chips fall where they may. You, you're looking for truth, whether it's uncomfortable, whether you hate what you find. And that's a really cool, like, spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. A, a positive thing probably for people to do, whether they're journalists or not. Exactly, and and incredibly difficult. And um, I definitely don't expect everybody to to do that any more than I expect somebody to go to a Zen monastery or, you know, walk do the snow leopard trail in Tibet or whatever. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, it's more fun to crush the beer can on your head and say that guy's an idiot. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, it's way more fun and more liberating and all, but that, but it doesn't really lead anywhere. Right. No, it raises a good question just in general, like how to how to filter all the stuff out there right now. Because you could take any particular issue that's relevant to this conversation, whether it be some new regulation or deregulation of something in the energy industry, yeah. or it could be privatization of public lands or something. And there's going to be people yeah. on all sides of the issue telling you, this is right, this is wrong, believe me, don't believe him, so on and so yeah. forth. Um, and it's so easy now to get the truth lost. You wrote something yeah. last year, a couple of years ago in Field and Stream. It was something like, how do you write in a post-truth era or something on those lines? Right, I remember um, that, yeah. How do you, I don't, know if, I don't know if we are in a post-truth era, but how do you go about filtering everything given just the, the confusion of everything these days? Well, uh, I, in that essay I wrote, you know, if you believe in a post-truth era, then you should pull on a pair of tennis shoes without your socks and go for a jog in the Bob Marshall wilderness when it's 23 below <laughs> yeah. and get way, way out there where you know you can't get home by dark and then tell me about post-truth. Um, so relativism, you know, the idea that nothing can truly be, be defined is not something that hunters and fishermen and real outdoorsmen um, will ever going to embrace. Not, not enough. I mean, I mean, you don't put the plug in the John boat, buddy. You're going down. Yeah, some things are irrefu- you know? irrefutable. Yeah, they are, and the and the plug is a very simple thing to put in there. You know what I mean? It's like so. There, but human perceptions of of that truth all are are in conflict, and the nature of a democratic republic like ours is to let the best argument win if it's presented in a way that people will listen to it. And I, I keep coming back to this. It's like the freedom of public lands, restoring floodplains and fisheries, removing unnecessary dams, having uh, effective and, and clear regulations about air and clean water, and then incentives to get people to follow those rather than trying to dodge them. I mean, those are things we can actually do, and I promise you that the truth of, say, the Des Moines Water District, where they cannot purify that water enough to, to meet safe drinking water standards, that's not post-truth. That's just real. You drink that, it's not going to be good for you. Mm-hmm. You, take, you, you restore those wetlands upstream. You incentivize those farmers upstream to stop putting that fertilizer in there. And I'm talking about regulation and incentive. I'm not talking about taking people's profits. Because we all we're all on the edge with money in this country because things are so expensive and our life is very we have a lot of expectation. So you incentivize you can clean that up. This is something we could all agree on. The question though then becomes for a lot of people it's 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 those things like the that idea sounds really good. I certainly agree with it. But then there's going to be someone who's going to come at you with this other say, well, no, they're taking away personal freedoms or private property rights or they're de-incentivizing business or they're making it harder for people to keep jobs. There's always these uh, – there's so many of these different angles that it's hard to parse. So I, I think from a really practical standpoint, for like an average person, a guy or girl out there listening who – They've got their job. 
they don't work in this space, but they love the outdoors. They love hunting and fishing yeah. and wild places. And they're trying to make sense of all this stuff that's coming in. And some of this stuff they're hearing you or me saying, hey, pay attention to this. Some of this stuff yeah. they're seeing on the news. Some of this stuff they're wondering, okay, is this important? Is this not important? Is this a good thing or is this actually bad? How do you go about like truth checking or verifying? How do you... Well, how do you BS check all these different environmental issues or regulations? Because um, maybe there are some things that are an overreach. Maybe not. Like, what's the process, the actual nuts and bolts process you go through to learn about, say, for example, the, the, the waters of the U.S. rule? Like, how do you go about and figure out, okay, how do I get a, an informed, clear perspective on this that can help me decide whether I want to advocate for it or not? Um, how can an average person That's do that? That's a great question. And so... As a journalist, what I'm going to do, one thing, I, I, I'm, I am coming at something as, from an assumption, though, that clean water is better than, like, polluted water. Um, that, that, I, that is a bias I have. It's a reasonable assumption. Most people share that. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, you know what I'm saying? Most people share that. So how do we get that? And was the waters of the U.S. rule uh, a, a, a effective way to achieve that goal? And the answer to that for me was I spent I spent years, and nobody in the, in if you're a roofing contractor or um, or or a financial reporter or whatever nobody's going to do this. So that this is my job. I got paid to do it. You know, um, you talk to everybody on all sides of that, and you're really careful with like when in that one with the Farm Bureau who was really against the waters of the U.S. rule. Um, I found people on both sides of that who were so for it or so against it to be less trustworthy than those who simply wanted the, the goal of clean water. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And so you really get away from the advocates, the, 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 the diehard advocates, and you go to people who have a more objective view. And again, my bias is for clean water versus polluted water. So how do we achieve that? And in my opinion, after writing all of those for so long, the Waters of the U.S. Act was a very well-written, very, it took into account private property rights and eventualities and all. But one of the things it required, there's two things that were wrong with it. One, they knew they couldn't get it through Congress because the farmers, developers, and some of the mining interests did not want it, and they had more clout in Congress than the people who just wanted to try to make this Clean Water Act, it, you know, expanded. Mm -hmm. And so they wrote it as a rule for the EPA. I can tell you there's a problem with that because we, the people, and our congressional representatives didn't get to look at that and pass it. Rules are very dangerous when put into place for, by federal agencies because they are the province of unelected, and I don't like the word bureaucrats because I know people who serve in those positions with incredible integrity and honor, but they are, they, they are now in charge of imposing this rule on the people. It's not a law. My opinion is we should put the Waters of the U.S. Act through Congress let everybody fight over it, and let's pass something however we can that, that will approximate it. Mm -hmm. But at, at, as it was, there were too many people who were convinced that it was over, It was stepping on people's property rights. Yeah. How, how, 
back to back to the every man who's looking at this, what are some of the resources that maybe like if, if I'm a listener and I'm wondering to myself, okay, I'm going to be trying to pay attention to some of these top level issues when they come down yeah. the line. I want to try to listen to different sources. I want to try to get a informed opinion. Do you have any recommended resources or types of people or types of websites or I don't know anything that you would recommend people turn to, to try to get a clear understanding of these different pieces of legislation or rules or issues that impact yeah. conservationists? I got it. So I'm going to say if you're a hunter and a fisherman and, and you, you really care about the environment that you hunt and fish in and that you pass on to your kids, um, I don't think it's a bad thing to go to an advocacy organization like Trout Unlimited and get their policy directives and say, and then, and then look at those with the traditional grain of salt. You know, this is their job. They're an advocate for the clean water. So, but I do think that backcountry hunters and anglers and National Wildlife Federation and Trout Unlimited are in good faith. And they will give you a rundown on what they think is important to, to protect clean water, air, public lands, whatever. And so these organizations are very, they're very important. Now, that said, you go, if you have worries, you, uh, you ask them, and then you go and you read. And I, one of the things that happened in the, the Tyson chicken spill on the Mulberry Fork of the Black Warrior in Alabama, which is last like last winter, mm -hmm. local coverage of that thing was great. And it was not biased, and people were furious at Tyson, and they, they asked Tyson why they did it, and the local coverage was very, very good. And so you got to read, you, you got to get off the Internet and get a local paper, whatever danger they're in. I, I was building a fire this morning. And reading the Helena Independent Record, which I don't get anymore because we don't deliver it here. And I was learning things about my community, my county, that I would never get in a million years reading on the Internet because it's not local news. Hmm. And that's a, per that's a peril we're in as a democratic republic that depends on the First Amendment, of the freedom of speech and the press. Yes. I mean, we need local news Good local news. I wonder about this often, just uh, whether it be the local news or just the larger, <laughs> the larger top level designation of of news or resources that you can trust. Yeah, I think trust is the thing these days that is exceedingly hard to pin down. Yeah, can I? Can we go back just for to the waters of the USA? Yeah, yeah. A rule. It required that the American people have some level of trust in the Environmental Protection Agency and, and by extrapolation, the federal government. The Waters of the U.S. Act, in order for it to work, the rule, it, it, it meant that we had to trust the federal government not to overreach on our private properties. And the, and the end result was it was, a, it was a huge propaganda campaign against it, yes. But the end result was that the American people decided that they didn't trust the federal government that much. And that's fine. I think not to trust is good, like the old Arabic proverb, to trust is wonderful, not to trust is better. <laughs> uh, I think that's good, but that comes with a penalty. Mm -hmm. 
and your lack of trust in the government that you have can can wind up being running you towards a failed state model. Do you do you trust our government? I think that the government should be recognized as we the people of and for and by and it should be checked at every turn and asked if this is the right way. That's an exhausting process. Yeah. But necessary. But I think that the institutions are sound. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that the ideas are sound, but it's a, it is it may be a government of laws and not men, but men are administering those laws, and men, as we all know, and women and children are fallible. Mm-hmm. So within that context, understanding that we live in this world where there's all these things that are happening that are impacting the resources we care about, and we yeah. have a fallible government that is built on strong foundations in many cases, but does have people, imperfect people at different times, exactly. different ways. That as are, are we all. Yes, as yeah. we all are. So they are you know, uh, enforcing or implementing these decisions that impact the thing we love. Yeah. Let me ask you this. And this is a very high-level, loaded question, um, but it's it's like the question so many people are trying to answer for themselves, I think, right now. Um, which is how to be a conservationist or how to be an advocate. You know, there's a lot of people that have got an Instagram profile these days and, you know, it asks for your title or whatever, these things you yeah. are. People will say, I'm a hunter. I'm a conservationist. Yeah. Um, how do you become a conservationist or what are the things that you should be doing or can be doing or should be doing a better job of to truly be that participant, that citizen participant that impacts these things we love so much. Uh, there's the generic stuff. I know, like, make your voice heard. I know that you should yeah. participate. But what's the nuts and bolts real stuff we can do? I tell you, um, there's a guy, and I've never personally met him. His name is Justin Schaff. He lives out in Glasgow, Montana. Mm-hmm. And they were working with backcountry hunters and anglers to remove these old, decrepit fences throughout all this antelope corridors out there in eastern montana north of fort peck and i would love i didn't i was working i've got other stuff but i i think that's the kind of thing cleanup days i see it through bha a lot but um there's that gun works um down in utah and they do those range cleanups on public land Uh i think that's the fundamental that's the that's the 800 foot level stuff and that and one of the things we had when we achieved the greatest successes in conservation and wildlife in American history, in world history, is we had all of these strange sportsmen's clubs all over the United States. And people went there and they drank coffee and they discussed the Ravalli County Sportsman in Montana was this huge engine of change for good. Um, we have them all over. We still have them, but the average age in there is like 66, you know. Um, and I don't know if we'll ever have that again, but we do need to join with people who have like goals and like passions and remove fence from antelope range, clean up uh, uh, the Black Warrior River for trash day. Um, and then those people brainstorm as citizens in the United States of America uniquely do, and they say, what do you think the next big thing we should work on is? Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. 
and you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. What do you think about the the nuts and bolts of some of the, the influence buttons we can press so we can do on the ground work and then the next yeah. thing we can probably do is try to influence decision makers and so if, if i'm thinking to myself what are my mediums of influence well i can show up at someone's office i can write a letter i can place a phone yeah. call i can sign a petition i can post a rant on facebook maybe those are like the five i can think of off the top of my head um what of those do you think are most effective and then secondly how do you make one of those more effective? Like there's the, you can send an email that's like the pre-written email that BHA already put together for you, or right, you can right. write a whole custom letter. Does that make a difference? Uh, what's your take I on any of that? I think the custom letter does make a difference for sure, but we don't all have time to do that. I mean, you got a new baby in the house. Yeah. Um, and so the other is, say, 80% as effective, and so that's one hell of a lot better than zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's the thing I notice I have, um, and I do not really have a political bias. I I've never fit in a party, you know, but I do think that politicians who do not listen, say congressmen who you write the letter and nothing happens. 
uh, or people all show up at the public meeting and the policies coming out of that office don't change. But, you know, people, that, it's time for Americans just to, to vote the, those people out because the people you're going to get in that do listen, they're not necessarily, it's like, like I, I know people who do single-issue voting on, on guns in particular, you know. And um, I, I've, I share the Second Amendment reverence. And I'm a Second Amendment absolutist, even, which is uncomfortable around more liberal people. But that's a perfect example of where we voted a single issue and let these these politicians go wild all around it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, why does the GOP, why does the Republican Party of the United States have a privatization of public lands paragraph in its platform? I mean, how many of us want that? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I just, I just think that should be there should be pressure there until that is removed from the platform. And I get emails and and communicate contact all the time from people that listen to the podcast, and they're they're very conservative, and they just go, you know what, we've come to the end of this idea that because I vote Republican that I'm going to put up with water pollution and privatization of public lands. I'm done with that. So now, you, what are they going to do? Yeah, that's the question. So what do you do? It's 2020. We've got a we've got an election coming up here in a matter of months. Uh, yeah. What do you actually do to change that? It seems daunting. Well, Tim Fox is running for governor here in Montana, and he came out with a whole – I haven't I haven't read all of it yet. He came out with a whole policy directives on conservation – Stream access public lands, so that's going to be like why? Why don't all of them have that? And so, if they don't have that, you're going to say, "Well, dude, I don't know if I can vote for you." What do you, you know, what do you, what do you want? What do you want? What What are you trying to make of my country? What are you doing up there? If you want to privatize public lands, how else? How? What are you representing? Do you think, Certainly not me. Yeah. Do you think it comes down to just the critical mass of people I reaching do. out to these folks? So, if, for example, I you do. have Republican candidates in Montana that are coming out in support of public lands and conservation issues because they realize in Montana enough people are raising a ruckus that they better. Yep. But maybe in, I don't know, South Carolina or something, maybe they're not. And so Republicans yeah. there feel like they don't need to worry about that part of things because no one's giving them a hard time. Is it as simple as that? I think it's as simple as that. And I think that one of the things we we've done in this country is we've been so uh, we've been so successful with the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Restoration of Wildlife, Pittman Robertson, you know, Land and Water Conservation Fund, that a lot of people have been able to deprioritize those things in their own like political life or their own 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 their own daily life because somebody somewhere is taking care of that yeah. <laughs> right? right but in a democratic republic which requires on the participation of the citizenry when you don't take you you think somebody else is taking care of it a lot of times the bridge collapse you know like you go wow i i, I hope those engineers know what they're doing that bridge looks like it's kind of off center <laughs> yeah it comes down to that that <laughs> trust again yeah, it, yes. And and I guess it, if we lose the trust that we can make a difference, we're in big trouble and I don't think I don't think we're there anywhere near that yet. You, you wrote you wrote though, uh in February of 2019, 
you wrote that you were worried that to some degree America's hunters and anglers had lost their stomach for a fight because yeah. of some of the things that were going on a year ago. There was the shutdown. There was yeah. the expiration of the LWCF, uh, all sorts of other things that we're aware of going on with deregulation of environmental policies. Still yeah. some people poking at the public lands privatization issue. Um, now it's a year later. Some things have changed, but I'm curious yeah. – do you still feel that way? I tell you what's happened was that the fight that we're talking about, the fight for public land and wildlife and all, it has become, um, we have got to take that out of the polarities. We, we as, as a people, all of us, Democrats, Republicans, independents, we have to remove the goals that we have. What is, what is that thing? We can, we can disagree on methods, but we can agree on goals mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we have to, uh, my friend David Ledford, who's a biologist in Kentucky, um, we did a podcast with him, and, and he, off, he, he has this kind of thing he'll say. He says, what is it that you want? He's particularly an ornithologist. He's a big, rowdy, like, Kentucky guy who, who loves birds and hunting and elk hunting and stuff. And uh, I met him because he worked at Elk Foundation a long time ago. He's gone back to Kentucky, but he's fond of saying, what is it that you want? Because on these re- these uh, reclaimed coal mine lands where he works, they can plant the plants and, and make sure they live that will support migratory, say, warblers. Okay? Mm-hmm. And he said, but, but people tend to look, look at it landscape and go, I just want it to be thriving and healthy. I, I, want, every th- I, want, I want a lot of things here. And he goes, you got to have goals. And one of the things you could say was, would you rather have clean water or polluted water? We'll argue about the methods, but we're going to hold on to that goal. And I'll tell you what, if you have a politician who doesn't care about whether you get polluted water in your well, and there are these politicians out there, buddy, or not, that guy needs to be voted out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that Elk River coal, that coal washing spill that they happened in West, West Virginia, mm-hmm. One of the reasons that was so devastating to the water intakes for people downstream was that their wells had already been contaminated for generations and couldn't be used. Now, somebody's not voting their best interest there. Right. It's... And, yeah, I mean, I mean, we've got to decide what it is we want. And I, I often ask um, people on the far right, especially, I say... What would it look like if you had your way completely? And, you know, most people don't really have a, they don't, they can't really, they can't answer that question. They know what they're against, but they don't know what they're for. And I I go back to my childhood. It's like, I always knew what I was for. It was like to take my kids down to the creek and catch brim and shell crackers and see a freaking deer or a, or a water snake or, or a, a queen snake, which were really rare, go by, you know? Mm-hmm. It's funny. To, to experience creation. It's funny, though, is, is that so true? But at the same time, if you look at, at history, if history is an indicator, more often it seems like it's only the threat of danger or crisis that gets people off their asses and, and doing something, which which isn't 
always true, but it seems like in many cases it is. Yeah, I think that's evolutionary biology for us as a species. Yeah. You know, like when the mat, when the when the dire wolf is not out outside the circle of fire, people sing and they dance. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about that year zero or whatever that is with uh, Jack Black. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a long time. Having that dance. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's in love with that, that, whatever that gal is dancing. Oh, man. Then he tells her to hit her on the head with a club and all, and he hits her, and he's like real weak, and she's like, ouch. (laughs) But like when they're not being attacked, people tend to go into like, like neutral, which is, you know, normal. Well, it's it's funny. Even but we're in, smarter than that. It's funny though. Are, are we though? Because I feel for so take this example. Uh, Quality Deer Management Association is okay. representative of deer hunters across the country. It is the most highly participated in type of big game hunting. There's more deer hunters out there than anything else. Um, but when you compare membership to that organization to something like DU, Ducks Unlimited, um, or Pheasants Forever, they have a dramatically higher uh, membership of those other species. Now, one of the theories is that deer hunters are kind of resting on their laurels because we're in the glory days of deer. Deer hunting's great. We don't have a wolf at the door, while ducks or pheasants have had more recent concerns. And so there's this urgency. Um, So I don't know. About that. Remember, um, Howard Vincent told me, who, who's the head of Pheasants Forever, he said the one of the, or Bob St. Pierre might have said this, he said the one of the biggest problems is like when, when upland game birds are up and everybody's got the dogs and they're having the time of their lives hunting, they let their membership lapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, he said, it's amazing how you can chart this. Like in, when times are good, everybody's like, yeah, it's going to be good forever. Yeah. And then when times are terrible, they you know they're all like, "We got to do something." I think I'll join up. Yeah. Well, the same things, same things true of the Second Amendment, right? You look at yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the same correlation with with gun sales and administrations and NRA membership. I'm sure it's tied to: Are you worried about losing your right or not? Yeah, for sure. And we don't. Can't you all relate to, to that? You yeah. know, You're like yeah. you're like okay, that's one less thing I got to worry about. Yep. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can't remember how much these tires I put on this, these 12-ply tires I put on the Forerunner. Like, after we had a series of flats, I was like, whoa, those things are, you know, I don't know how much they are, but they're so much money, I couldn't believe it. I got to worry about that yeah. right now. Yeah. And so I get it. Um, but, you know, I don't think – we have such a good track record, Mark. Um I mean, really, up until up until now, and maybe it's just because I'm paying attention, this is my time. You're paying attention, this is your time, mm-hmm. especially you've got younger children than I do. But, like, we have such a good track record. Like, I was thinking when this meat, it's not a meat shortage, but when the COVID-19 got the meat processors, and you realize that, like, a quarter of all the meat is processed in these five plants. Uh-huh. Like, that's a big national security food security problem yeah like how come we let all of our local slaughterhouse processing facilities go belly up one by one over the course of my life i mean that wasn't very smart and but i re- every time i open up the the computer now there's somebody writing about local food security 
and there's there's I'm, I was reading a piece from the Food and Environment Reporting Network. I was reading one from Civil Eats, which is something I follow there. And it's like there people are buying more seeds. They're 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 talking about local food security. So we're God, we're a problem solving bunch of folks for better or worse. We dammed up all our rivers. We did. You know, <laughs> We like we we got rid of the bison in like thirty uh-huh. years, you know, and then we brought them back. Yeah, like like we're we're the like the best in the world at wrecking stuff and then fixing. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. Yeah, um, we really are though. I mean, you look at Europe and and I, it, it's just kind of moribund compared to here. I mean, I mean, it's just like like here, it's just like there's just vibrancy, and I I think part of it is the conflict, and I think we're too polarized now. But it's the conflicting visions for our country that are like two turbines. You know those magnets that make electricity? Yep. Pushing and pulling. I think that's it. Yeah, pushing and pulling. And, and like there's just this like blue fire right in the middle of that. Obviously, I'm a, a kind of a uber patriot or whatever you call it. I, you know, yeah, it's the most interesting place I've ever been. Uh, well, it's interesting. <laughs> you got that fire is either what you harness and it runs the turbine or it destroys yeah. it and explodes from yeah. within. Exactly. It blows the roof off the building and kills everybody out there. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly how do you, right. How do you see what's going on right now with COVID-19 and all the ripple effects? How do you see that impacting the future of our conservation battles? Once again, I think we're on a wobbly place where, um, one, I'm I'm extremely concerned about the amount of money that I don't know where it comes from that's flowing out to everybody from from the the poorest to the richest. I don't know where all that money's coming from, but I do think that we're going to see a consequence in federal land management and the privatization movement as a result of this deficit that we're running up, okay? So you're saying and, a couple of years from now the bill is going to come due and people are going to look to our public lands to pay it? Probably. And they're also going to, if we if we let them, then we're going to see, like, people go, well, we just can't afford to do the uh, EQIP, Environmental Quality Incentive Program, which is a fantastic program, by the way, by the, by the NRCS, to protect and buffer watersheds. We just can't afford that anymore. And I'm like going, whoa, wait a minute, buddy. How much is it going to cost when Des Moines is flooded or St. Louis is flooded out again? You know? Um, So we're going to have to insist on a more rational, environmentally-based economics and budgets, or else the 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 low hanging fruit is going to be everything that we love, mm-hmm. and that that concerns me. Big problem. Yeah, you know it's funny. Another one of the things, and that makes a lot of sense. Another one of the things that I've been wondering about is we have this this storm of current events going on related to the pandemic and the pandemic response and the economic impacts, et cetera. And it's all consuming. It's, it's like a hurricane that's all around us and it's all you can see. It's all you can hear. You walk outside, you get slapped in the face by the rain and the lightning. And underneath all that though, other things are still happening. 
there are yeah. this there's been a slew relative slew of different policies being put into place or environmental protections being removed or yeah. different rules being put in place that are impacting our wild places that are very much so flying under the radar right now because they can. And I've been reading stories how some people are kind of racing to get certain things done underneath the cover of COVID darkness so they can get away with this stuff while nobody can really put much energy towards it. Is that something you're seeing? Is that something you're worrying about? Is there any truth to that? I think there's some truth to it. I'm not worried about it. And here's why. The, the initial paradigm, the, the American people have said that they don't trust the federal government. They, they, got, they bought into this Ronald Reagan view that says the government is not the solution, the government is the problem. What are the 12 scariest words in American in, in English? I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Okay? <laughs> we, yeah. we bought that. Okay? And dig, dig this. We bought that in spite of Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt and all of the billion, millions of bureaucrats who've done their jobs and made things good in America. We bought that idea. We bought that narrative. Ronald Reagan was the first to articulate it. Um, and somehow now we've said all of this deregulation that the Trump administration is doing is nothing different than what the Republican Party has been saying all of my adult life they wanted. And so do I worry about it? I do not, because you get what you demand. You get what you say you will stand for. And if the states now, they say, 10th Amendment, the states' rights are going to do it. Well, you know, where I grew up, states' rights was a rallying cry for Jim Crow law and all that stuff, which, which obviously needed to change, right? But I do think that 10th Amendment is, is an important thing. My, my belief, my hope, is that the people of the United States will get, a, get away from this hatred of the federal government while they get the mail and drive on the interstate highway system and do all the things, enjoy all the benefits of having a functioning federal government, but that they will hold the states more accountable for managing the environment, air, you know what I mean? Like that this could be a positive thing while we recognize the benefits of what we had pre-Ronald Reagan. And I'm not saying Ronald Reagan was bad or anything, but this was just something that came up in the 80s that has now achieved kind of a, a nuclear success amongst Americans. Yeah. So here's an interesting example of something that's relevant to what you described. How about something who kind of came of age of, of sorts, ideologically at least, during that era, who's now having an impact and who's sliding under the radar in certain ways, which is William Perry Pendley, the yeah. acting director of the BLM, who, just like a rule that was not put in front of Congress and didn't have to be voted on, he's been named an acting director of the BLM, but not made the real director of the BLM, so he doesn't have to go because through the... Because he couldn't the, be confirmed by Congress. Exactly. So he doesn't have to go this through the confirmation. Obviously, yes. This is obviously a piece of skullduggery that the American people... Are, you know, they, I just can't believe it, there's just not enough of us that know, know what's at issue there, I guess. So we've got a guy who's 
publicly stated he is anti-public land that is now in charge of the agency that administers, I believe, the largest percentage of our public lands in the country. Um, And that's still happening. It's been going on for a year or something like that now. Uh, And again, he just got re-upped and no one's talking about it. What do you think about that kind of thing? I think that that, if, if I were looking for an example of why I did not trust an administration, that example would be a photo of William Parker Pendley. Yeah. And I, I, I'll tell you another thing. It, it, if, if American hunters and fishermen and women are going to put up with an administration who appoints, I, I would ask your listeners to do this. Look up Pacific States Legal Foundation and Mountain States Legal Foundation, which is where Pendley came from, which is where Gail Norton came from under George Bush, 43, and where uh, James Watt was an originator who was under Reagan, who, you know, did all that outlandish stuff on public lands, against the public lands. Um, look up Mountain States Legal Foundation. Look up Pacific States Legal Foundation. And, and just judge for yourself whether representatives from those organizations should be in control of American public policy. And I'm not saying that those people may not perform a valuable service as gadflies and watchdogs and law and, and lawyers in the private sector, but ask yourself whether those representatives from those firms should be in public policy over with power over things that you believe in and that you want. So here's the here's the dilemma though, Hale. Is okay. someone can be, you know, a hunter angler out there trying to pay attention to this stuff, trying to say what's going on in our government right now that's good for our environment and for hunting and fishing and what's going on that's not so good. And they see something like this with Pendley and they go and do the research you just told them to do and they see that, hey, okay, this is this is an issue. This is not a good thing. This is an indication of people doing something that is is not going to help us out in the long run. So that might put a X in the column of, hey, these guys aren't doing very good. Uh, when it comes yeah. to these things, and when I go to the voters' box this November, I'm thinking about that. But yeah. look on the flip side. How about, I don't know, a month or two ago, they came out with the new hunting access uh, increases for wildlife refuges. And they're increasing access to a whole bunch of different pieces of public lands across yeah, the country. I, that seems like a pretty good thing. You probably wrote about that. I did, too. Yeah. So how does someone make sense of that? Like, hey, here's a really good thing they're doing. Well, what did it cost them? Okay, so Randy Newberg has that wonderful saying, conservation is not convenient. Yeah. And when you do large-scale restoration of, say, the Mississippi River watersheds, there are winners and losers, there's no doubt. So so what did it cost them to reestablish some access? And I'm not saying it's, it's, it's not important to the wildlife refuges versus having William Parker Penley in control of, of – uh, um, at interior, right? Um, like, like, like what was the convenient thing? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying it's throw us a bone because it, it is throwing us a bone and we all know that is, but it's a good bone. Right. You, you don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth completely, right? No, but you can, you can accept that and still say that Parker, William Parker Pendley or that, that ridiculous leasing orgy that they went on on oil and gas in the migration corridors and stuff like that in Wyoming. I mean, yeah, yeah. and and that the the reason that's a problem 
is one, the state of Wyoming did not stand up and push back against that leasing, even though their fishing game, they didn't feel that they had the power to push back. That's a problem, okay? The other problem is those leases imply a right to drill, and you can easily use those leases as hostage leases in the future. And you could say, you know, you're going to have to pay me or I'm going to take the knife to the Mona Lisa here. Don't want to, you know. And so those leases should have been considered and debated and discussed for a long time. It's not analysis paralysis to try to find out what that right answer is. And when you see people doing fire sales of public assets, people should be paying attention and say, whoa, 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 Nelly, let's just, let's hold on. And then you say, holy smokes, look at who's conducting this fire sale. They are an anti-public lands activist. So do we really? So then you you, you write your letters, I guess, but in the end you're going to have to change the paradigm that says that these people are allowed to auction off our assets or privatize our public lands or enable other people to profit by polluting our water. Mm -hmm. That's the paradigm that we haven't gotten there yet. We we never have gotten there. I think that's – so in the COVID-19 thing, these are the questions that are being asked. What is a healthy environment that will that'll, that'll make people strong and healthy and resilient in the face of pandemics? Local food security, clean water, places to, to, to disperse recreation. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, it's not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients 
are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Another question that all this has got me asking, and it, it's it's right in line with some of the things you described there. You, you identify something like a fire sale. You see an issue that, hey, this is there's something going on here. We need to do something about it. So there's the, the wolf at the door. Or the flip yeah. side, we'll see, hey, here's an opportunity. Here's something that was proposed. It's a great idea. It just needs our energy behind it. So you've got yeah. one of those two kinds of things. And then we as a at-home conservationist that wants to make a difference, we now know, okay, I can call, email, whatever. My big question is during this time with the coronavirus consuming so much of the oxygen in the room, Yeah, are we are – we, blowing what's the word i'm looking for here are we wasting our time trying to honk the horn at that stuff right now because there just isn't any oxygen in the room like when's the timing right when do you think that we can start pushing on these things and have the politicians actually be able to pay attention um i'm just worried like right now it seems like no one can focus on anything else because of the crisis they can't and and that's true but but now is the time for people like listening to this podcast to start saying like, okay, let's let's again, Americans. I think as a as a nation, we're the greatest problem solver in the world. You know, there may be some hunter gatherer band somewhere in out in the Kalahari or something that's better than us. You know, at the day to day, but as a nation, we're the best. So, what are the things that we need to solve? What are the things that have the the cold light has been cast upon them? by the COVID-19 pandemic and by the government's response to it, okay? I mean, one of the things that, I, boy, we could, we could go on forever, and I know we can't. So one of the <laughs> things that's very disturbing to me is that we had government directives, powers, that left the Home Depot and some of these huge businesses open while local businesses were forced to close. Yep. One of the things that really bothered me is that, that we have – entered into a regulatory state that discourages uh, small farmers and small meat producers from supplying local communities, while the larger entities have taken over all the markets with predictable results, by the way, like like importing beef from other countries and, and paying our guys, our people, less, you know? Um, illegal labor in the in the cut in the in the processing plants where people are getting hurt and they're not they don't know about OSHA and they don't know about the rights they have as Americans. I mean, the largest entities are grabbing stuff, but and and that's true and it's terrible. But the thing and it's bad for our national security. But in the long term, we weren't noticing that before COVID nineteen, and so now is the time to start paying attention and perhaps listing the things that you as an American citizen see that obviously a million of us, millions of us could do this. This would be incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. Did you use that state park to take your kids out during the pandemic? And where would you have gone if you hadn't had it? And wasn't it paid for by Land and Water Conservation Fund? Yes, it was. Yeah. You know, did you take them down to go fishing? Like I was catfishing my 
mind out <laughs> this, this spring. Like, I wanted fish. I wanted to get a bunch of fish. I felt food insecure. I had six deer in the freezer, but I didn't get an elk. I called a local rancher about getting a, a cow. It was available. I, I relaxed on that, you know. There probably were a lot of people, though, turning to some of these outdoor resources, whether it's food security or recreation, and it, it, it has shined a light on some of these things for some people that maybe wouldn't have normally paid attention as much. I saw it everywhere. I just, like, I, I, in fact, I mean, there was days where I was, I was really kind of ecstatic because of all the things I was seeing people questioning and pointing out, holy smokes, thank God we got that. I mean... Everywhere I went, and there, uh, by the way, we—I know there's a lockdown and quarantine and all, but there's like enormous numbers of people around where I live enjoying their public lands. Yeah, they were making me nervous, but hey, man, it, <laughs> it was one of those times when I really wished I lived closer to public lands. I, I've I always yeah. do wish and appreciate it, but this is one of those times it was, it was visceral where I you know yeah. we weren't supposed to travel long distances, we weren't supposed to cross state yep. lines, we weren't supposed to do all these different yep. things. And I'm stuck in a place right now where there's not any public land. We couldn't go hiking, there wasn't good fishing, uh you yeah. know, I couldn't go find black bears or anything like that. I was stuck wishing I lived where you live, Hale. <laughs> and um yeah. I bet yeah. you there are a lot of other people that are in big cities or in similar circumstances wishing, man, maybe there's something to be said about some of these places and some of these resources that we have. Uh, I think it's very possible that, that this represents somewhat of, a, of a, a seismic weather change in American consciousness about that very thing right there. Yeah. And whether that means that land in Missouri is going to be more expensive as people like rush out to try to become food secure, you know, which would I, I mean I don't I don't know what's positive. And then rural America has been in free fall for the last like thirty years, you know. Maybe we could use a, a resurgence of people moving to rural America. Yeah, I, I um, yeah I wonder and I hope that if if this thing keeps tracking in a a hopefully better direction and we're able yeah. to get our politicians to have their energy dispersed a little bit differently. I'm hoping yeah. that this can be an opportunity to get something like the great American outdoors act done yes. because that's such yeah. a clear, there's, there seems to be such a clear connection between, Hey, you appreciated that state park. Your city park was that one place you could go and, and enjoy yourself safely. Yeah. Um, and or the national parks that are reopening now, that's somewhere you can safely go, hopefully safely yeah. go. And I hope that we can have the energy and the attention to push something like that through. Um, yeah. So there's that opportunity. But then I worry about the thing you mentioned earlier, which is the bills. You gotta, how do you pay the bills after we just printed well, all this money? Here's the, here's the thing is those things are not going to be negotiable. You know, you're not going to be able to, to – suck out the land, the land and water conservation fund. You're not, these things are not negotiable. These are, it's, it's kind of like a family budget, right? You're, when you're going to pay for your house, you're going to pay that mortgage and you're going to pay that water bill because you need water. Those bills are not negotiable. And that the idea somehow that our freedom to roam on public lands or to have a state park to take your kids or to swim in the Creek or catch fish for dinner the idea is that those are the low-hanging fruit that people can just slap with a freaking stick whenever they want. That's what we got to change. Yeah. These are inalienable natural rights of the American people. 
not to have somebody poison my well because they don't want to pay to haul off that 55-gallon drum of used toluene. Right? Mm-hmm. That's not negotiable. Unfortunately, and, and out of sight, been, out of mind for a lot of yeah. people, though. It is, and by the time it comes into sight, it's it's awful hard to get back. Yeah. And that's a, that's a big – I would uh, – I mean, that's one that I here's, – here's a – I've been throwing this to everybody lately, but this is Frederick Douglass, and I just read his giant biography, which is, is giant. Uh, we're talking <laughs> Frederick Douglass-Turner, Frontier Thesis? Yeah. Yeah, no, Frederick Douglass the slave. Oh, yeah, 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 sorry. He was the famous abolitionist, and he was actually a slave for all those years, and he bought his, bought his way out and then became like the firebrand, you know? Yes, yes. But he was also a very complicated, incredibly complicated person who I have come to see as a person who understands more about power, oppression, natural rights and stuff than, than anybody that I've ever read about. And this is what Frederick Douglass, who had been an actual slave, said, Power concedes nothing without demand. It never has, and it never will. You show me the exact amount of wrong and injustices that are visited upon a person, and I will show you the exact... Oh, Lord have mercy, I've got it. I've got the wrong quote. But he said, you show me the amount of wrong and injustice that they will endure, and I will show you the amount that will be opposed upon them. Hmm. So if you think public lands are negotiable because other things are more important to you, you should ask what those other things are. Does that make sense? It does. It does. How do you how do you implement that into your daily life? How does that become a part of what we hunters and anglers do today though? The the first thing is to make time to enjoy all that stuff so you know what you're talking about. Remember Edward Abbey said be a half-hearted fanatic. Yes. And if you do that, you'll outlive the bastards. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, though, the bastards may win unless you're willing to go to the mat for those things that, that you're out there enjoying. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you think about some of these other ideas that have been floated recently um, to, to kind of pair these two things together? So derive some kind of public land or conservation benefit while also addressing – some of the pandemic issues. For example, I've seen some people proposing, you know, trying to lump a bunch of public land and recreation related infrastructure work into a future stimulus bill. Uh, or another idea being, what about bringing the conservation uh, core back and bringing some of these people that don't have jobs right now back to work in some of these places? Well, yeah, any thoughts on that? Is that something that makes an incredible idea? And I, and I, I think that. Um, I thought for a long time, I didn't serve in the Army or the military, although, I mean, that was always one of my plans, and I never did. I do think that national service of some sort is is a good idea in the future. I think we've become too abstracted from our, our system of governance, you know, and not just civics class, but like, like actual participation as a citizen. And so I'd love to see something like a CCC, you know, my grandfather was a super conservative guy in the Depression. Um, he'd been in World War One and gotten mustard gas and all that stuff. And he hated, like, the WPA, <laughs> the we poke around, you know, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But in, in long term, you know, those things were good ideas. 
And I understand that, like, like some people are going to object to that and hate them because they're a government program right. or whatever. But in the long term, they they proved out a lot of things did, like the the Taylor Grazing Act, yep. you know, to address overgrazing on the public ranges in America. Yep. Those things proved out, no matter how many naysayers there were at the time. So I think those things are incredible. I I, I guess we're going to be able to fund them, like if we're going to be giving people money anyway, you know. I just I imagine this this infrastructure project, especially as addressing floods in America, which are increasingly disastrous to our budget, our economy because of federal flood insurance, and to our water quality and to our fisheries. I can imagine these enormous restoration projects that put people to work doing something incredibly positive, and we balance that out with the private uh, the private land owners. Um, what they want too, right? Because a lot of these tributaries are on private land, and I could just imagine—I I, would—I can imagine an America that works better than it ever has because of the knowledge we have right now. And you could just—you could step forward into a future that we all want to live in. And it's not that—it's not that complicated. We already know how to do it. We're just not sure how to get there. When this whole thing clears up, when hopefully whatever normal is, whatever the new normal is, I guess, is yeah. is now, whenever that is, we're able to get back at it. And hunters and anglers, we're out there doing our thing. If, if I gave you a magic wand, hell, and I said that you could have two wishes that you could make, two things that we will do differently or two actions we will take or – You've got these two wishes on hunters and anglers to help address some of the things we talked about today, to help us become better conservationists for the future, to make that new, brighter future reality. What are those two things you're going to ask for? Holy smokes. They're going to be boring. <laughs> One is is reform of federal flood insurance and a emphasis on restoring functioning watersheds across America, both for economic and other reasons. And I wrote a piece at Field and Stream called Let It Flood, how we can create a fish, clean the waters and create a hunting and fishing, save the economy, clean the waters and create a hunting and fishing paradise. That was like 2013 or something. But during the research of that, I became convinced that this is one of the main things. So it would be reform of federal flood insurance and an emphasis on the restoration of, of America's watersheds. And the next one is that we as a people would agree that the American public land, 640 million acres, and that doesn't mean all of them, we're going to have to solve the checkerboard and all that stuff, but we are, we have, we hold this as an asset in common, and we're going to use this asset to the prior, to prioritize this asset to build ecological and social resilience into a future that we can't imagine. And those two things right there will not solve all our problems by any means, but they'll solve one sector of them. And in that ecological resilience building and access and and CCC operations and tree planting and and erosion control, we're going to see an economic boom in rural jobs. And man, the sky's the limit on the positive here. I'm going to give you one more 
one more wish because I like where your head's at, Hale, and I want to give you more okay. opportunities for good. I'll give you, I'm gonna give you one more, and that's for me or for someone listening to Bob, Joe, Jill, whoever's listening. You're gonna give us one to do item, one thing you want us to do when we get off this podcast. Okay. What are we doing? We are going. First thing I would say, we're going to go fishing or hunting or, or swimming. <laughs> good, good idea. Um, but I, I, I'll throw you a twenty, a twenty, eighteen thousand footer. We're going to change a political paradigm in the United States that says that our environment, our the health of our children, and our freedom to roam, hunt, fish, enjoy the American landscape is not negotiable by any political party. And if, and, and if you believe that these things are not important, you belong out of public service and back at Mountain States Legal or at your roofing business or trade and real estate in Dallas or whatever. If you believe those things are negotiable and that you somehow can deprioritize those things, you're not going to be elected to office. And it's on us to make sure that our politicians then are accountable for that, huh? They're accountable for it and that they know we want it. There's a great – one of the politicians said it. It was somebody in Montana. I can't remember who it was. They said, whoa, this is a great idea. Now make me do it. Yeah, yeah, that's it right there. Make them do yeah. it. Yeah, because, he, you know, he, he's got to listen to everybody. And, and there's other people saying things that aren't good ideas, but if they say them louder and they say them more often – then he gets it. There's a let me throw you one last off. Frederick Douglass. It if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. <laughs> Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be opposed upon them. And these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. <laughs> That's good stuff right there. It is. It's called, uh, it's 1857, Frederick Douglass's speech called, If There Is No Struggle, There Is No Progress. Hmm. Wow. Well, I think that's, that's, that's appropriate, appropriate <laughs> marching orders for us, to, for us to leave on and know that we, uh, we cannot allow ourselves to be oppressed in our natural world and our wildlife and wild places if we want those things protected, if we want our public lands to remain available and healthy for ourselves, our kids, our grandkids, yeah. it's on us. And we're yeah, not going to stand for us. those things to be to be ignored or they're not negotiable. Non negotiable. I like it. Yeah. Well I think what I'm going to do then, Hale, with that set of orders is I'm going to just place a phone call, leave a voicemail with my senators saying just that. Just saying, hey, yeah. you know what? This isn't you can't have either or you can't be good on this thing and not so good on the other. I need yeah. you to uh to support this stuff. And if if a whole lot of people did that we'll find somebody that will. Yep. I mean, Florida is a great great example, you know. Like 
Like they're they're do it. They have a disaster in the Everglades. They have a disaster south of Lake Okeechobee. It's it's a huge mess, and everybody's conflicting and throwing rocks and stuff like that. But they're actually working, and it's not a political thing. It used to be, but now it's like you said, it's in sight, yeah. right? It's not out of sight, out of mind. It's in sight. Right. right. Well, but, hell. well, Mark, thanks a lot, man. Hey, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. This has been fun. You are always someone I can turn to for inspiration and insight, and uh, I cannot wait to see this book that you're working on. I can't wait to read it. It's it's going to be awesome. I know it. Um I just wish it was here sooner. I want to read it right now. I wish you were done already. <laughs> Me I'm, I'm sure you probably do too, yeah. <laughs> As a person who's written a great public lands book, I can tell you for sure. Me too, buddy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I know you must have felt like that at some point. Oh, for sure. Every every day I was just wondering, when's this thing going to be done? Will I be able to finish yeah. it? Can I do this? Yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm certain you well, will. Well, you did it, though, man. And it's also it's a great book. And I've I've handed it out to anybody who would who who I knew would needed it. Yeah, I appreciate you doing and that. A lot of people who who had to read it anyway because I've put it on there. <laughs> well, thank you for doing that. And and Hale, if people want to follow along with what you've got going on, or read your work, or on stay tuned to to when your book does come out, how can they do that? How can they see what's going on? Right now, I'm I've got my website, which is halehearing.com, um, and I've got the BHA podcast. Which I hope they'll that people are listening to, and I am told that once I buy a smartphone, that I can have this Instagram account that I'm going to use as I travel around the country working on the book. But I don't have that yet. So the way to follow it now is either the, a lot of stuff is archived on the website, or just through the podcast. I give sort of some sometimes I say what we're doing. Um, I have you know I'm 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 not a luddite by it all, at all. But um, I'm really behind because I've, I have such a short attention span, <laughs> well, and and the right. fishing and hunting it takes over my life at times, really, perhaps in an unhealthy way. Like I'm gone. Well, I think you'll uh, you'll die a happier man because of that than otherwise. <laughs> Maybe skinnier <laughs> so. anyway. <laughs> That's, could be could be worse things, Hale. Yeah. All right, Hale. Well, hey, man, thank come you. see us when this is all flat out. Hey, I will take you up on that. I, I love love that part of the state. So I'll see you in Wyoming maybe, too, later in the summer. I agree. Sounds good, Hale. Cool, man. Thank you, Mark. And that is it for us today. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you being a part of this. Appreciate you uh, listening to what we had to say as we kind of bounced all over the place and I don't know. This was kind of one of those conversations where I was trying to wrestle with questions I've had myself and, and try to get Hale to help me think through it all. So hopefully that translates into something that is helpful to you too. So with that said, thank you again. Be safe, be well, and until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. 
Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 